Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Bricklane Brewing. We are grateful for Bricklane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe. And then you'll never miss a video. In Cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are. But thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it. This is the final word story time, our weekly walk through cricket history, hand in hand, take our hands, we are strangers in paradise, we are Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins and we are bringing this show to you once again. If you're a person who listens to the show, it's story time number 70, which means there is no smut, no innuendo, there is nothing funny or suggestive about the number 70. So if you're someone who likes to keep things highbrow, you'd like to keep things a bit cleaner, you're in the car with a bunch of young children. Let me reassure you, this week's show will be above the belt and uh, it will be a little different in ways that we'll explain in just a moment's time. But first, welcome to the show, Adam. Hi, Jeff. Yeah, I'm, uh, what are we? I leave the country in nine days to join you in Australia. Although, strictly speaking, I won't be joining you straight away because Mm. by the time I get to Melbourne, you'll have gone to Brisbane to do two weeks in quarantine because CA, uh, well, I say quarantine, whatever you need to do to enter Queensland Mm -hmm. to be at the Gabba Test. You'll be one of the handful of people, and I mean small handful of media members who who do the 14 days because, I mean, honestly, why would you? As we've said repeatedly on the show, it's farcical that the players are being asked to do 14 days quarantine purely to stay in keeping with the the schedule as it was announced months ago. 
we're now having a debate around the Perth test, Jeff. I thought this might, um, might, might end up taking place in about a month or so, but they seem to be duking it out now with um, the Tasmanian Premier yesterday writing to CA saying you should hold the fifth test here, which makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, and then Chris Matthews pushing back saying it's a waste of ink in your computer printer for writing that letter. So basically trying to alpha um, the Tasmanian Premier. I don't. I, I suppose if I was running WA cricket, I'd feel quite mm. punchy as well, given uh, they were responsible for being the swing vote in killing Earl Eddings and therefore why they have so much power. Because any rational, any objective view of this, Perth should not have a test match. And no hard feelings. The WA people had their say at the ballot box earlier this year. The government was returned with a thumping majority to implement this very policy. So there's no problem here, no worries. Um, They've done their thing, different to other parts of the Commonwealth, and that should preclude them from hosting a test uh, this summer, especially when it means the players having to go into quarantine again, which I think is just ridiculous. Uh, It'll mean that not only are the players in quarantine in Perth before playing the test match, they'll have to be in a hard bubble probably in Sydney and maybe even Melbourne. So the freedom the players have allegedly been given in their negotiations will be gone after Adelaide. So the whole thing's farcical and it all comes down to board politics and uh, we should be better than this as a game. I think how it's going to work is that they'll be um, hermetically sealed off once they're in Perth. So it won't really matter if they've quarantined beforehand or whatever it is. I mean, that wouldn't satisfy the WA government anyway, even if they did. So it will be more like, you know, once they get there, the hazmat suits and the the, the plastic tunnel, like, you know, when they wrap up the house that ET's inside in, in the, the giant plastic tent and everybody's going in. That's how they'll enter WA, both, both teams, um, and they'll have to stay in that very strict bubble for the entire duration of the match, which also means that no one else can actually go to the cricket from outside. Um, you know, they'll probably get a decent turnout at their nice stadium, but sheesh, it's, um, it, it, it doesn't really stack up for me that there are so many people who can't get into WA to see their families um, who've been cut off from them for so long who are not allowed to get in, even if they're willing to do the quarantines, even if they're willing to do the two weeks in a government-approved facility and all the rest of it, they're not actually even able. That doesn't exist. That option doesn't exist. But the cricket will be allowed to go ahead. It doesn't sit right that that's what's continuing to happen this far into a situation where, uh, where, where it doesn't need to be like that anymore. Yeah, I think that's the main thing. It doesn't need to be like this. So there's some talk that it'll be a five-day quarantine for the two teams. There's talk of like silly stuff like if the ball goes into the crowd, they'll need to replace the ball. I mean, all of these sorts of things that, you know, I think we were willing to make as a sport loads of concessions over the last 18, 19, 20 months. But it doesn't feel like this is necessary. If it were any other state beyond West Australia. If this wasn't the Perth test, I'm sure we wouldn't be having a conversation quite so explicit. But WA with a swing vote on the board uh, recently, which effectively ended the tenure of, of Earl Eddings. So CA are clearly wary of what of what WA might do. Now, I know that it's not just that state. There were other states that contributed to mm. Eddings going. But still, th- they've been willing to switch recently shows that degree of volatility. And they're clearly confident about retaining the test per Matthews's comments uh, yesterday. And yeah, like you might be right about them getting in just, you know, whatever they've been doing, but it's been put to me that they will have to be in stricter living conditions in Sydney, potentially Melbourne as well, Mm. in order to satisfy the WA government. I mean, come on. Are you really saying to this England team who are in two weeks of unnecessary quarantine right now that they're going to have to do five more days of quarantine, potentially pushing out that 
date as well. So the tour, which is meant to finish on 18 January, maybe it now finishes on, say, 20 January. There was a report from Andrew Wu uh, in the age yesterday to that effect. So all of these extra hoops that we're going to have to jump through just mm. to placate the Wacker, and it's not the Wacker's fault, by the way. I'd argue my corner if I were them too, but it, it's not their fault. The game, the test match is under threat because of the decisions made by the WA government, which have been supported by the people. As I say before, that's the approach they've taken. It served them well. Good on them. That is fine. But this series and the players who are coming out for it and all the rest of the associated parts of the cricket world, of which total hundreds into the thousands, shouldn't be held hostage by that this deep into the pandemic when there are myriad other solutions, including Hobart and including Canberra, who would both do a fine job, or going back to Melbourne, Sydney or Adelaide, or indeed Brisbane, who by that stage could all host this test as well. Mm. Yeah, I suppose if if, uh, if crowds were the principal issue, because you can see why they'd say we want 60,000 plus per day in Perth rather than, you know, 4,000 in Hobart. But yeah, if, if, if getting but people it through be. the gate was, but, was the but problem. But it wouldn't be, would it? If, if it were Hobart, they'd sell it out every day in the same way they sell out the Big Bash every day. Yeah, um, but what's, if, what's their capacity at... Bell Reef. It's yeah, about 20 12. odd. Uh, no, I think, oh, no, no, it's closer to 20. It, it might be 18. The I point is, was, is that. I thought it was 12 to 16 somewhere there. Somewhere no, there. I, I think I think they get more. For the Big Bash games, I reckon they pile in up towards 20. The point is, is that the, the issues with Tasmanian attendance at test matches when they've been held, you know, tough times to get a crowd in. And, and look, I get it. I understand the criticism, but this wouldn't have that problem. Yeah, yeah. If Tim Payne oh, no, was leading Australia that, in a national That's test. not what I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not making yeah. that particular jibe. I'm just saying that the actual capacity is much smaller. So, yeah, I'm sure they would get more people in. But you're still looking at 40,000 fewer tickets being sold um, potentially. So that could be a reason in itself. But if that were the reason, then that is something that could easily be solved by having it at one of the other um, larger grounds that's already had one. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, Jeff, on to what we're doing today on Storytime. Uh, a bit different because, as we kind of foreshadowed last week, we have found ourselves in a, in, a, in a situation, a good situation, where we have a lot of revisits because of the way we've been doing Nerd Pledge over the mm-hmm. last six months or so. Often we have a crack at telling a story. There'll be clues bouncing back and forth, and it can often mean numbers could take two or three or four attempts, which probably isn't the most efficient way of running the show. But that's cool. That's the that's the way. That's the rhythm of story time, as it is. So what we thought would be would be prudent before we get into the Ashes summer, where we're both going to be very busy boys, is to try and clear the revisits. Now we might get it all done today. It might take two weeks, but it does mean that in the short term, if you've been a new pledger, it might push back your number being on the show by a week or so but it will mean that the whole story time process is a little bit more manageable through the busiest time of the year for Jeff and I. Yes this this is all about optimization, uh, workflow transparency, <laughs> strategic values, a plan that is focused on looking forward. We acknowledge that we have a, a long waiting list now on story time but we're confident that future technological developments will help to solve that problem <laughs> at some stage in the future. We we trust... HCL technology is going to get on board with us, are they? <laughs> I hope so. I certainly hope so. And that fintech mob fintech, that are working yeah. with the ICC, um, you know, whatever they're... You know, let's, let's use up the power of a small nation by making uh, a, a range of final word NFTs. Um, and, and, and I didn't realise that. Can you explain mm. that bit to me? So when I saw the NFT announcement come up on the mm-hmm. on the coverage of India's last game, funny that they 
popped up the NFT thing um, mm-hmm. when India were playing for the final time in the comp, and it wasn't even mentioned during the semi-final. I didn't get the bit about energy consumption. Can you mm. do you understand that that side of it? Not not greatly, but in a very hacked up sort of way, it, it you you manufacture this kind of um, code chain that authenticates the originality of the thing so if if you know you you want to buy the grumpy cat meme you want to buy the nft of that you want to be recognized as the original owner of grumpy cat then you can but the string of code that proves that you are the true grumpy cat owner has to be manufactured by a shitload of computers which means it needs a lot of processes running in order to continue verifying and re-verifying this chain of of code so basically it um it does not come without a a cost and given that so many people are speculating in this absurd bubble of like random fake crypto and nfting everything in sight and all of the (laughs) boards like the icc and ca and so on are going oh hell yeah nfts yeah whatever if people give us the money for it let's do it yeah here's an nft of Cameron Akmal dropping a catch. Here's an, an you know, um, there are other ways you can make money off Cameron Akmal dropping a catch. Apparently, <laughs> so that's that, um, hoeing into that means that there's going to be much more um, energy being required to do it, and most energy uh, being produced is still not being sustainably produced. So it's a bad climate change um, thing. This is tech talk on the final word. Yeah, bad, bad for climate change, but potentially good if I can sell that photo from the Oval on an NFT. So the offer it's, remains. It's all, yeah, it's <laughs> fundamentally the same thing about how much of the planet can we burn to make some money in the short term. That's that, you know, the, the age-old human um, desire. All right, Jeff, uh, our long introduction is complete. Time for us mm-hmm. to play some. Mm-hmm. Nerd Pledge revisits. Nerd Pledge times two, Nerd Pledge squared, Nerd Pledge Avogadro's number revisits on Nerd Pledge. Here's how it works. Nerd Pledge is a game. It's a game that we play with people on our patron page. They help us fund the show by sending us contributions, financial contributions, but they're not round numbers. They're not normal numbers. They're very specific numbers with a decimal point and a couple of decimal places because those numbers relate to cricket in some way and we have to work out what the relationship is. Sometimes we have a guess and that guess isn't right and we have to come back and look at it again and that's what a revisit is. For instance, first cab on the revisit rank today, Bernie Prins, who sent in $3.33 a few weeks ago. We talked about Chris Gale making 333 We talked about whether everyone who makes a triple ton is a knob. Bernie wrote back to say... What a great laugh, the knobs of 333. I was listening during a brief moment of strong frustration at work when you ran through a stiff list of great players. Thank you. (laughs) My number was a team score, but that list was better than a boring old score. Great work. Uh, Okay, so it's after a bit more messaging, we found out it's a team's victory margin. And Bernie said, a game where the pitch was very responsive to some tweak bowling. Yes, that it was. And I was there. Uh, I was there at Pune in 2017 to watch Australia win by 333 runs, which is the the number that uh, Bernie is talking about. Spoiler alert. Uh, and it includes a pair, per the clue, of six for 35s by uh, Steve O'Keefe on the dustiest track that's ever been, I think. Certainly the dustiest track I've ever seen uh, in Test cricket. 
Steve O'Keefe, who, who was having a massive crack at the WA government in the news today, saying, I don't like Mark McGowan. I don't want to go to Perth anyway. Let's not bother. Um, let's just <laughs> forfeit the points when the big bash comes around. <laughs> I don't want to go somewhere where they won't let people in. Oh, good. Um, so I didn't realise that soccer had been involved. There you go. So, yeah, I mean, this this was the test where uh, India was set 441 in the fourth innings, like on the third morning, uh, and we're all out for 107, thus the margin of 333. It contains Steve Smith's 18th test century in just his 51st match and one of his, what we described at the time, of his trilogy of great innings. There was the, the Pune epic, then there was what he did at Brisbane, later that year against England uh, in November 2017. And then there's the Birmingham first innings century when he returned in, in 2019, which we were at, Jeff, which uh, kind of completed the set as far as I was concerned. Yeah, but going back, what a ridiculous three days that was. For, for my part, I arrived in Pune that morning about an hour into play, beginning, if I recall correctly, having come via Cape Town and Ethiopia and Mumbai. I mean, I had delays and... God knows what. It was a very, very tough journey and I was sick as a dog as well. So I, I arrived ill at a test match and by the tea break, I you know, was on the OBO as I would being the industrious freelancer that I am and was back on radio on the second day. But yeah, quite a stressful experience. I got there in time to see Mitch Stark belt uh, 61 or 63 to get Australia up to 260, hit three massive sixes. That was after Matt Renshaw shat himself ran off the ground, which we talked to him about uh, on the show a couple of years ago, actually. Uh, it's funny, isn't it? We had this lovely conversation with Matt, and the first thing I think about is him telling us how he shat himself. But, you know, he came off the ground uh, abruptly, uh, then came back on later and, and played quite a brave hand, actually. And then on day two, India are actually 70 for three at lunch after losing Coley's second ball to Stark. They have consolidated somewhat, and they were going after O'Keefe. His first couple of overs went, went around, remembering that he was brought back into the team to be the second spinner alongside Nathan Lyon. They were leveraging a lot in that preparatory period that it was going to be Lyon and O'Keefe that would do almost all of the heavy lifting as the two spinners. They weren't going to play three spinners. It was going to be those two, and, and it wasn't working out. So we, we at the lunch break on day two, uh, we looked down and noticed that, that O'Keefe didn't leave the field. He stayed out there and kept bowling the whole way through lunch with the spin consultant, Sri Sriham, who was a, a former Indian first-class player. Uh, and they were um, they were going through their paces, and that was when all hell broke loose in this test match. As it happened, I was on radio to call Australia taking five for four. I mean, you know, it's my first stint on there. You know, it was kind of a big deal for me professionally. And then in my first 20-minute stint, Australia take five wickets. It was complete carnage. Uh, it started with KL Rahul, uh, some crazy batting, holding out, and then soccer's in the game. Two balls later, getting Rahane with Pete Hanscom taking a brilliant catch. Ritterman Saha made it three in and over when he edged soccer to first slip. Ashwin was caught off his boot offline, I think it was, with Hanscom again diving away. Giant Patel, remember him? Uh, he was out. Oh, Giant Yadav, sorry. Giant Yadav uh, was the third spinner for India. He was also out to O'Keefe. All told, there were seven wickets in an hour uh, to bowl out India for one. 155, though I completely shell-shocked. And the pitch was wild. Uh, so when Smith came in, you know, early in the second dig, when Marsh, 
your, your mate Sean Marsh made a 21-ball duck. Of course he did. You know, it was all on his shoulders because even though they, they had a first innings lead, you could easily conceive of a scenario where Australia would then be out for 100 and it would be a, a bit of a, a two-innings game. But instead, Smith made 109 from 202. Just extraordinary that he, the way he played Judasia, happy to kind of play inside the line to him and look like he was being beaten outside the outside edge and was occasionally, but it was his cat-and-mouse game between Smith and Judasia, which was compelling for everyone who had the pleasure of watching it. Uh, he received really good support from Renshaw and Mitch Marsh, who both made 31 to sort of help out. Stark made 30 more. Wade made 20. So they all kind of chipped in, but that felt like the natural cap. Like you, get, you could get to about 20 or 30, then you were going to get an unplayable. Whereas Smith was somehow keeping out the unplayables, and that's why he lasted as long as he did. Then thumped his chest with... I remember he was covered in dirt, wasn't he, Jeff? He, and, and he was thumping his chest when he got to three figures. And, and in the end, Australia were all out for 285, which remarkable they lasted that long. And they attributed it all down to the prep they'd done in Dubai at the uh, ICC Centre before going out to India, that long camp they had. Um, it was almost never in doubt that O'Keefe would, would do the same thing again in the second innings. It wasn't quite as dramatic. India lost two early wickets and they were all out for 107. Lyons took the last three, didn't he? So O'Keefe, in a way, was robbed of a nine for. But um, yes, it was 4,502 days between victories for Australia in India and they completed it by 333 runs at Pune in the March of 2017. Thanks to Steve O'Keefe's 12 for 70. What a series. Bernie... That is your number, your 333. Uh, we're very confident in our answers today, almost exclusively, that we reckon <laughs> we've got these right. Uh, Tom Fisher up next, the Fisher King, with his $3.21. The clue was 18 and BP, and so we were looking at various things involving British Petroleum and Bridgesh Patel and blood pressure and uh, every test cricketer who had the initials BP. Tom sent through a clue to say, think about one-day cricket in Australia and uh, something to do with this came about by the way in which the match was conducted. 18 and BP. Well, 18 is the number that Virat Kohli wears on the back of his one-day international shirt. Mm. And BP could just stand for a bonus point, which is what he achieved in 2013 was it against Sri Lanka in a in a, a tri Oh yeah. Series, that was bonkers. That was 20 that was 2012. It was 11 12 mm. at Hobart. I remember watching it living in London at the time and wondering who this fat kid was who was twatting them everywhere and it was Coley. <laughs> they were chasing 321, right? But to give you a bit of context about this. I mean, you know, India's spiritual home of Hobart, obviously. I you know, love Bell Reeve, love to get down there with them, um, you know, get the crowd in and so on. They, they they look around and think they should have an ashes test here. Look, Sri Lanka have smashed them all around. Dilshan's made a massive ton. Sangakara's made 100. And the thing is that India can only qualify for the final of this tournament if they get a bonus point in this game. So they were, you know, a, a bit like Afghanistan in the T20 World Cup the other day, needing to beat Pakistan handily and then batting first and not making a big score. It was like when you're bowling first and the other team makes 320, you're stuffed. You can't get a bonus point in that situation because they'd have to chase the runs within 40 overs to get a bonus point. And it's hard enough chasing 321 at the best of times, let alone within 40 overs. Uh, they did it in 36.3. <laughs> so three and a half overs to spare. Verinda Saywag did a little bit off up the top. Tendulkar did a bit. Gautam Gambia made 60-odd as a sort of anchory type innings. But when he was out, 
It's 201 for three. They're still 120 short, that means. Coley and Suresh Raina, between them, scored 120 runs in the next nine overs. <laughs> and, like, it's not end of the innings party time. This is just the middle of the innings, but they decided this is going to be party time. So of 54 mm. balls, they made 120 runs. Um, and Sri Lanka... They knew all they had to do was deny India the bonus point. They didn't even need to win the game. It didn't matter. They just needed to keep India beyond the 40th over. So they loaded up on Lasith Malinga, who was such a good death bowler um, at that point in time, Such so good at restricting scoring, nailing the Yorkers again and again and so on. He bowled 7.4 overs. So he bowled 46 balls in all. He ended with figures of 1 for 96 from his 46 deliveries the when he was genuinely the best Yorker bowler in the world and it was mm. really because Coley got in his head Coley just started shuffling around the crease a bit and started hitting his Yorkers for four and then Malinga didn't quite know what to do and so he he started getting the length wrong and bowling low full tosses and Coley just went savage on him in one over Coley went two six four 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 from Malinga who generally went for about four or five and over. Coley ends up with 133 from 86 balls. Suresh Rana, 40 off 24. It's still Coley's third fastest ton in one-day mm. cricket, and he's made about 40... How many's he made? 43? 45? Yeah, about that might be closer to 45 now, yeah. Um, a lot. Hasn't made one in a couple of years. But, yeah, super fast, super aggressive, and just the most ridiculous result, and... Um, for what it's worth, India made the Tri-Series final. I'm sure they look back on that fondly. <laughs> yes, I think that was when... I, I, that was probably the last hurrah for the Tri-Series, I reckon, Jeff. It might have been the last season. And it gave that, that last bit of magic, uh, thanks to Virat Kohli. Uh, thank you to Tom Fisher, 3-2-1. Uh, next up, Anna Forsyth uh, with her very generous pledge of 1910. We were given a reasonable amount of space on this and Jeff, you decided to talk about Middlesex in 1910 given Anna's affiliation, but we weren't right. No, Anna says the answer is a little closer to home for Jeff. Therefore, I must conclude it involves Australia in some way. She says, if I could offer a somewhat cryptic clue to Adam, it would be another word for 22 yards or the way the ball moves or what our American cousins would call a ball bold. Okay, so this must mean pitch, right? The word pitch. To be hopefully less opaque, it concerns my two favourite players from my least favourite team and when it all began for them. If you're still stuck, Adam should think about something the two of us were discussing a lot earlier <laughs> in the year. Okay, so it's got to be two Australian players because Anna's a, a very firm English favourite. So it's got to be two Australian players that Anna likes. Yes, it is. And I'm not going to throw Anna under the bus <laughs> to refer to what she was talking of exactly. Uh, but she's referring to Pitch, Pat and Mitch, when they made their one-day international oh. debuts together on the 19th of October, thus 1910, 2011. So uh, they have both been ODI players for now just over a decade. And in Pat's case, that was like straight out of the Sheffield Shield, what he was able to achieve as a teenager, a 17-year-old, wasn't he, in 2010-11, you know, just finished his HSC, then was playing for New South Wales the next week. We we all know that story. Then suddenly, you know, he's a Centurion in the one-day team with Ricky Ponting with him. That's quite something. I must admit, I'd forgotten that Ricky Ponting kept playing in the one-day team beyond the 2011 World Cup. In my mind, yeah. I thought he'd – I know he gave over the captaincy then, but I thought he'd retired from that format then 
in fact, that, that wasn't the case. Ricky Ponting kept playing one day as pretty much to the same time that he retired from, from Test cricket in 2012. So, and in this little stretch, they were using him as an opener. So Rick opening uh, made 63 out of 183 for nine in a rain-reduced game of 29 overs. And Mitch came in briefly at the end and made eight not out against Stain and, and Morkel and all the rest. And then Pat came on first change and helped destroy them. South Africa were all out for 129. Pat takes three for Sodall. He follows Johnson and Dougie Bollinger, who were the opening bowlers. Mm-hmm. But he was immediately in the game. He got Callis for a duck. Pretty useful first wicket there in the format of the game. Bowling an all-time great. Then he had JP Dumini caught at second slip. Lovely piece of bowling. And the third one, a rarities and oddities. Uh, Johan Botha was hit wicket for 25, but of course the, the bowler gets credited with the wicket when it is hit wicket. Uh, so Cummins gets three for Australia win the series 2-1. Uh, and yeah, it was this plus the T20s that preceded the one day is where Cummins took five wickets at 10, which convinced selectors that they just had to play him in the test match. I don't think they were like, I suspect they wouldn't have played Pat in a test then, if not for what he did. I reckon he was pretty much going on, look, you'll play a few white ball games, you'll continue your apprenticeship, you're clearly going to be a test bowler. Be soon, around the boys. Be around yeah, the boys. Get, get around the, lads, the boys. Lads, lads, boys, boys, boys. And then they're like, well, how can we in good faith leave him out after they've been resold in Cape Town for 47? They needed to make changes and they decided to make one in Cummins. And, of course, he goes on to uh, become the player of the match for... Six wickets in the second innings, hits the winning runs. It's one of the, the great modern stories of Australian cricket. Yeah, I forgot they debuted together, actually. Um, that's somewhat surprising um, to me. I, d- I did remember that, yeah, Ponting Ponting gave up the captaincy but kept playing after they got knocked out in the quarterfinals in that World Cup because he'd been very resistant to the idea of being a non-captaining player um, mm. before that. You know, like, when I give up the captaincy, I'll, I'll finish, but then eventually decided not to. Uh, next up... Dan Walsh with the $4.19. Right. So we can't remember what we said because it was one of those Daniel answers, I think, that were kind of hard oh, to It was a Norcross answer, together. wasn't it? Yeah, some yep. of Daniel's answers don't get quite as well documented as Jeff and mine. So I, I actually don't know what Daniel said. However, Dan came back to us and said that four nineteen relates to a seismic moment in Jeff's own cricket upbringing and also in the life of a nine-year-old Littleton aspirant Two. Oh, we must have talked about Alfred Littleton. I suspect um, so. Yeah, Alf- oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense, right? Alf- Alfred the lobs at the Oval. Yeah, that, that'll be it. I suggest Adam take over scouring the scorecards because Jeff has written previously about not wanting to look up this particular game and risk traumatising his visceral memories of it. So needless to say, Dan, I read this clue and duly sent it to Jeff because I wanted to, to fuck with him. So, uh, Jeff, have fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, well, well uh, this is something that I mentioned in a piece of writing where I said because I remembered this game so fondly, I didn't want to know if I remembered it correctly or not. So you can go and look up the relevant passages on YouTube and so on, but I've never done it. I've never watched it back because I want to, um, I want to remember it as I remembered it. It's about a one-day international in January of the year 2000. It's in a tri-series. What do you know? The old Australian tri-series. It involves India again and it involves Pakistan. It's game six. Australia's playing Pakistan. At the fall of the first wicket, Pakistan chasing 287 and in walks a young all-rounder named Abdul Razak, who you will remember, I'm sure. Only a couple of months after his test debut, he'd been playing one day as for a few years before that. And... I was interested to see, I I thought he wouldn't have batted at number three much before that. So 
I did have a look and his career in one-day cricket in terms of batting is absolutely bananas. He played his first match at, at number 11, his second match at number 9 and his third at number 10. Now, th- th- all these numbers I'm going to mention, these are single matches. So he goes 11, then 9, then 10. Then he opens. Then he's back at 9 for the next game. Then he's at 4. Then he's at 10. Then he bats at 9 and then 6 and then 9 twice in a row. And then he goes back to first drop for five games in a row. <laughs> then he bats at eight, nine, three, eight, six, opens, goes back to nine, seven, seven, three, three. <laughs> and this is this game is, is his second uh, match batting at first drop in that right. sequence. That's been his career so far. It kept going after that. It took 11 years of his career before he played more than six games in a row in one batting position. He just kept moving all around the order. So in this match, he comes out at first drop and he goes, what am I going to do here? I'll just take on Glenn McGrath. And he smacked him for five oh, yeah. boundaries in five a row. Five in a row, wasn't it? Yes. Five and five balls within the, the one over. And nobody did this to Glenn McGrath. This was, this was 2000. You know, this was, this was Australia at its most uh, rampaging, arrogant, dominant, you didn't do this to Australian mm. bowlers. You couldn't do it. No one could do it to Glenn McGrath. You would just nick players off. And I remember what I wrote about was listening to this in, in the car, going to get fish and chips at the beach, and I was like, don't turn off the engine. Don't. I'm staying in the car. I need to listen to this because, <laughs> because it, was, it was magical that somebody could do this to Glenn McGrath. Maybe you could turn the, the car – I mean, I'm not, I, I don't think it would be the case with modern cars, but you could turn the – the key just halfway to keep the radio mm-hmm. on. Yes. Uh, and and yeah. that, that, I did a lot of that as a kid when not wanting, when my parents were doing something, I'm like, no, no, I need to keep listening to the cricket. Just turn <laughs> it halfway for me, please. <laughs> I'm sure you did. As, as soon as you had to leave the ground early. Um, yes. So, yeah, so that's the one where I, I have checked and, and it is on YouTube. Abdul Razak hits McGrath for f- five boundaries in a row and I've never watched it. I don't want to know. I don't want to know where they went. don't want to know what happened. It's better in the past. So how does all this I think I remember them. I reckon it was coming down the track and going up over cover. Because that was the one day, I mean, you're about to talk about, I'm sure, who won the game for Australia, but I reckon that might have been Justin Langer back in the one-day team as well. It was a Mm. bit of an unusual series in that that some players got a Guernsey who wouldn't otherwise because of injury and I suppose a bit of player management through a tri-series. But, yeah, Langer was playing and and then, yes, the game changed later, even after uh, Razak teed off because Australia had a secret weapon. Yes, and Shane Warne had done his shoulder that yeah. summer, hadn't he? He'd been uh, diving finger. At- that was the 99-2000s, uh, the broken finger yeah. in the Shield game. Right. Yeah, yeah, the shoulders a couple of years later. Um, yeah. Hence the, hence the uh, mum gave me the diet pills. So Abdul Razak, he makes 40, I think, um, and he's out with a score on exactly 100, and he's caught in the deep by McGrath from the bowling of Stuart McGill who is on his ODI debut that day. He goes on to get Muhammad Yusuf caught behind, as I'm a mood, caught in the deep, Saklan Mushtaq LBW. And as we talked about when we interviewed Stuart, he only went on to play two more one-day internationals um, in a, mm. a format where he, he could have dominated. That night, he was the player of the match. He bowled 10 overs and he took four for 19, which is the number for Dan Walsh. Beautiful. I remember that McGilla performance. It was that all of his celebrations that kind of reeked of, why didn't you pick me before now? Mm-hmm. It was like just that kind of grumpy walking down the pitch. 
Why didn't you pick me? I remember he showed off the – they had the uniform with the blue panel stripe under the yes, arm. And, yes. and he showed that off to great effect in his LBW appeal. He was down on one knee with both <laughs> arms raised, modelling the blue stripe. I would contend that that is the worst of the Australian kits. 99-2000 with the blue on the side. No fan me. Don't like the mm-hmm. font on the front of it either, to be honest with you. It's my um, favourite. But, but McGillah said to us, didn't he, when we interviewed him, was it about a year ago, maybe a bit more than a year mm. ago, that one of his great regrets in cricket was that he got typecast as a red ball bowler, even though he had a fabulous white ball record for New South Wales, which meant that he found it hard to get a game for Australia in the one-day team when Warren wasn't playing, which was, you know, Warren, Warren played a lot of one-day cricket, but he also missed a lot of one-day cricket. And they tried mm-hmm. a, a number of different options without really looking to the second best spinner in the country through most of that time. Yeah, it was an odd one. And like maybe it was to do with batting and fielding. You know, maybe that's where you, they, they go for a player like Brad Hogg or someone like that who can can add a bit more in, in both departments. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that it would have been grand to see him play more, put it that way. All right, Dan Walsh, thank you, 419. Let's take a brief break on story time. And when we return, a lot more, many, many more revisits and a few confirmations as well. G'day, guys. This is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lehman. It happens once a month, and it has been happening for four years. It is Wisden Cricket Monthly, the grandest cricket magazine in the world. Uh, It comes out every month, and it will come out in this month again. November is the month. (laughs) It's the Ashes special, uh, and it's coming out before the Ashes because this is the month in which that can happen. Well, here's the thing. It's four years since Wisden Cricket Monthly launched in this in this. Newest incarnation, right? Yet this is edition number 50. Now, last time I checked, there were 12 months in a year. This Mm -hmm. bolsters our conspiracy theory that we've been advancing on the show for a long time, that Mm -hmm. there is some disparity between months and editions of the mag. And this proves, if anything, you get more value for money than you think as a subscriber. So can I, can I put on. that to so you? Four, wait, so twelve in a year, twelve by four. Can we call Mark Ward to get um, a ruling on twelve <laughs> times four? Well, twelve by four. When I went to school, that was fifty. Says Mark Ward. Right. Thus, why this edition? I remember the first edition of WCM. Uh, Jeff, we both did it wrote come out in November or October? Because the Ashes see, last time would have started earlier. The you see, Ashes ne- last time started in November. Yeah, this is a good point. This is the December edition, right? Because we're in November, thus it must be the December edition. Oh uh, yeah, that's and, logical. And, yeah, and the, and the first edition, you're right. I remember it came out when we were in Canberra covering the Women's Ashes of 2017, which was probably oh no, October. that would have been September as well. No, it was no, late it was September. October. No, it wasn't. The first test started on the 24th of. November last time around, and you and I were in October. Canberra. No, twenty fourth of November, the, last, the first you. test in Brisbane. Are you going to try and argue with me? Are you going to try and argue with me? The first test of the men's Ashes started. No, no, the women's in test October. was in October. No, no, no. But we were in Canberra, not for the women's test, for the women's T twenties. Yes. Okay. Yes, which were immediately. Pre- you might recall we nearly missed a flight to, to yep. Brisbane for that. I do. Which so I'm, what, the point I'm simply saying is that it was mm-hmm. it was circulating before then. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's that's why it's. Maybe that, that's one extra month. That gets them to 49. Where's the 50th come from? Short where run. They... Short, I, I'm calling short run. I mean, where calling is it? Short run. Short run. Yeah. I've got the signal where's... going right now. Or Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's they, they've rounded it up. They've done a WG Grace. They've come in on 49 and said, <laughs> find us another edition, will you? You know, just had a word to the scorers. Just, <laughs> Better make just, it 50. Just round it up. Yeah, make, make it a 50. It. 
Yeah, if, if, that was at Grimsby Cricket Club, wasn't it? Where Grace said, "Make it four hundred, not three ninety nine." Mm. Um, well, what I yeah, that first edition, I wrote this really long feature about well, with Steve Smith, like a three thousand word jobby, you know, like life and times of the Australian captain ahead of mm. an Ashes series where he blitzed it, and I suppose six months before he um, was no longer the captain, so. Uh, a strange time in the life of SPD Smith. This time around, of course, being an Ashes preview, uh, there is a lot about the Ashes, 18 pages to be precise, where they're considering how Joe Root's men can overcome the odds and achieve one of the rarest things in cricket, an overseas win in Australia. Perhaps not quite so rare given India have done it in two of the last three summers. But their point stands. England winning in Australia hasn't happened an awful lot uh, since 1970-71. Uh, Crickviz examine the accepted truths of how teams beat Australia in their own backyard to try and separate fact from fiction. So I'm looking forward to... Uh, having a look at that long section at the front of the mag, Jeff. Yes, uh, there's a fair bit of in-depth player stuff. Haseeb Hamid giving an interview there. Taha Hashim is profiling Cameron Green. They're Good interviewing piece. Phil Tufnell, chatting to James Wallace. Um, there's uh, an interesting one with Catherine Brunt sitting down with Isha Gua. They, they used to open the bowling together for England um, and now they're doing an interviewer, interviewee sort of uh, deal and there's also a non-Ashes player close to our hearts, Ryan Tenderskada uh, the the Netherlands great, one of the grandest to don the orange uh, who's hanging up the cricket kit after having played for a long, long time for Essex so he's chatting about leadership and all the, the lessons he's learned from his career. Yeah, so he's finished up with Holland after finishing up with Essex uh, earlier this year. Yeah, and I should note that that Taha piece with Cameron Green's a, a ripper. Taha's getting a, a lot of um, a, a lot of discussion around him at the moment because he was the, the journalist who broke, so to speak, the Azim Rafiq story this time last year or maybe 14 or 15 months ago. So he's an excellent young writer on the magazine. There are, of course, columns from all sorts of people. Andrew Miller shines a light on cricket's moral maze. I'm yet to read that, but that's an interesting teaser. Lawrence Booth, the editor of The Almanac, is tackling the question of taking a knee. That'll be worth reading. I've written a thousand words about James Pattinson. Uh, I, I don't expect there'll be the last thousand words I write about Pato, but no. he's kind of on the podium for guys I've written about most in, in my yeah. journalistic life. I was about to say, you've written a thousand words on him, but you could have written many thousand more. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of leave, I leave it with this sort of uh, this kind of teaser, I, I suppose, by saying that, well, look, he is only 31. And look, yeah, he's going to keep playing Red Bull cricket. He'll stay Red Bull fit. He's playing for Knots, playing for Victoria. Albeit, I'm not playing this week for Victoria after um, getting suspended. I love Pato's um, Instagram stories today where he put up a series of incidents where players had thrown the ball back at batsmen and not been suspended. <laughs> and he left it at that. <laughs> You can't not love subtle. Him. You can't he's not very love subtle. He's, he's, he's he is renowned as a subtle <laughs> operator. Um, so you're in there with that. Suresh Menon is in there. I guess looking at the ashes, but like what what the ashes means beyond the ashes, you know, for everybody else outside that. And Andy Zaltzman doing Andy Zaltzman things by uh, drawing the links between Joe Root and the 16th century explorer Juan Sebastian Alcano because, of course, he is. <laughs> what a place to leave it. I should also say, being the 50th edition of the magazine, a number of people have, uh, have, have uh, reflected on their favourite half-centuries in Test cricket. Jeff, I'm going to talk about one of my favourite half-centuries later in the show in part two of Storytime. Any that come to mind for you where they've made an influential 50 but not necessarily got to three figures? I think... Philip Hughes at Trent Bridge in 2013, yep. the 81 that he made there yep. supporting Agar and, and what he did, you know, the, the Agar innings can't happen without 
Hughes guiding it um, and you know just just how well he played one of his best knocks. Absolutely. So bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW, all very straightforward. The magazine, uh, when you buy it through us, this six-month subscription, it works out to be 10 quid or 15 Australian dollars for six editions of the best magazine in the world. And don't be put off by the idea of it being the digital edition, by the way. That's how I read the magazine on my, on my, on my iPad. And I read it now more than when I get the hard copy. And that's no reflection on the hard copy. It's just simply that it's such a user-friendly app. So bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW. That's all in the show notes. It's a 44% discount for six months of the best cricket magazine in the world. Wisdom Cricket Monthly celebrating 50 editions this month. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. This is The Final Word. Story time. Jeff Levin, Adam Collins. We're on the revisits only show, ploughing through some numbers that we haven't got in the previous weeks. Coming out of the break and coming in hot, it's Max Heaton with $5.88. Adam said it was the most runs ever scored in a single day of test cricket, uh, which is true. Uh, and Max enjoyed what he said sounds like a frankly ridiculous day of cricket. But he said, my number is actually about slow scoring rather than fast scoring. Ooh. Yes, he, he said that we were going to enjoy finding it in the database. In the end, it didn't take me too long to work this one out. It must be in relation to Sonny Ramadan. And I know quite a bit about what happened at Edgbaston in 1957 because we've talked about it quite a lot when the Windies have a brilliant start to their test match by knocking over England for, for Sodol and then building a healthy lead of 300 before um, Cowdery and May put on 411, the record partnership in test cricket at the time and all the rest of it. What I didn't quite realise was the subplot with Sonny Ramadan, who was the man who had bowled England out repeatedly four years earlier to record a, a famous series victory the first time the Windies beat England in England. Well, this time around, in the first innings, he took seven for 49 in 31 overs. I mean, tremendous figures. That was his 10th test Pfeiffer in 29 tests to that point. So you get a sense of what a giant this guy was, uh, the Windies tweaker. And they're so far ahead in the game. Their lead, as I say, it's in excess of 300. And then when they bat a second time, England this is, Ramadan continues. He picks up Peter Richardson and Doug Insole early in the second dig. He's already got nine for the match. They are careering towards a an innings victory and a famous one at that at Edgbaston, first test of the series. Well, then Peter May and Colin Cowdery, as I said, added 411 and batted for, for 10 hours together or thereabouts. And Ramadan went through... 80 wicketless overs consecutively. His figures were 98 overs, 35 maidens, two for 179. So he fell one short of 10 for the match after all of that. In that second innings, you can do the math there, he sent down 588 deliveries, which became the all-time record and remains the all-time record for balls bowled in one innings, overtaking the 522 that Chuck Fleetwood Smith bowled at the Oval in 1938 when he was bowling to Len Hutton for hour after hour. Yeah, a bit, bit harder than bowling to some drunk bastards at some Hollywood 11, Chuck, wasn't it? Yeah, take him. Clark Gable. Take him. <laughs> Clark Gable wasn't yeah. in the 18 this day. Uh, yeah. <laughs> bit, bit harder than picking him up at getting your wickets at 7.5 or something. Yeah, it was, I think yeah. it's 238 wickets at 7.5 on that tour. Uh, but yeah. I suspect Chuck may have found Clark Gable pretty easy to knock over, um, just quietly, <laughs> if, if, if they'd had a, a quiet moment between themselves. 
I'm tipping that might have been the case. Uh, so, yeah, Andy Zoltzman wrote a piece around this. Speaking of Zoltz, we just referred to him uh, in the Wisdom Cricket Monthly spot before about how Sonny Ramadan was a phenomenal cricketer. We mentioned his stats before um, this test match. But after this test match, one wicket in his next three matches in the series. So thoroughly neutralised. Seven for 49 in the first innings of the series. Only one wicket in the next three test matches. And he never took another test fifer. That was it. So the turning point was that spell of 98 overs and 588 balls. And he holds that inauspicious record to this day. Wow. Um, well, I mean, in some many ways, it's auspicious because it shows how uh, how much tenacity and resilience he had to be able to send down that many deliveries. And you know, he's got the record. No one's ever gonna gonna get it. They know they won't bowl enough overs to take it from him. Yeah, that much is true. I wish he had to bowl two more overs, really, though. Had he got through the full 100 and 600 mm. balls, not to beat. But thank you, uh, Max Heaton, for giving us a chance to tell that story. Next up, Jeff Andrew Gilberson, the Brazilian correspondent. We said, first time around with 471, we looked at uh, Sangakara and Jaya Wardner, uh, their partnership, which at one stage was 471 at the close of play or something like that, or Sri Lanka were on 471. We also looked at... Yep. Yeah, the part- yeah, the partnership was 471 at starts. Right. right. Before it went on to become 600 plus 628, by the time. 628, is it? feels about right that's the, the biggest partnership ever in test cricket in keeping with the the theme of the of the previous uh, answer uh, but uh, Andrew came back to us oh, and also I said that maybe it was to do with Ed Cowan given the original clue was to do with um, batting for a long time and of course the Cowan ton that we initiated on White Line Wireless all those years ago and Ed having made 471 runs in his last really good season for New South Wales when he was just about back in the discussion for a test place but uh, it didn't quite didn't quite happen for Ed, uh, and then Andrew uh, Jeff has uh, has written us a message to give us a, a a bit of a shove. Yes, starting out in Brazilian Portuguese, Bom dia, Adam e Jeff. Espero que voce estaje bem, which means good day, Adam and Jeff. I hope that you are going well. We are. Um, Andrew said, I got the slab of Brick Lane. I gave a loud and clear fuck yeah when you called the case for me <laughs> and enjoyed the commentary surrounding my magical left boot. Uh, you're spot on with the Cowan Tun as a metric of crease occupation. Ed Cowan was involved in the highest partnership for the first wicket in a test match for Australia when touring this country and was not out when the opening partner fell. The number was too low for me to pledge as I am rather invested in Winnie's well-being. So so my pledge of 471 relates to a number that occurred later in the innings when he was eventually dismissed. Saoje, which means health or cheers. Oh, thank you, Andrew. I can give a little Winnie update on the way through here, can I? So she now knows how to dance on command. And when I say dance, she swings her hips from side to side. And when I say dance shoulders, she moves her shoulders back and forth. It's ridiculously <laughs> cute. Um, Winnie's going to be the smash hit star of the summer uh, back in Australia when she returns because she is a very different baby to the one that left uh, mm. those shores in February this year. My first instinct, Jeff, was that Cowan played test cricket in the Windies in India and in England for one test. So my thinking was, well, they had a stinker in India. He got dropped after the test in England. It must be in the Windies. And I thought, well, is there a technicality here by saying this country and thus maybe it was Dominica where it was the first test that Australia had played in Dominica and Cowan and Warner put on 
one and 17. But I thought it's possible that 17 is the highest opening partnership for Australia and Dominica because my recollection was that Australia only batted once in the Test match here in 2015, and I reckon, uh, I reckon that, that, that they lost an early wicket. So mm-hmm. that might be true that yep. Dominic, that Cowan has been involved in the highest Australian opening partnership in a country, Dominica. But mm-hmm. you've done a, a more conventional uh, answer than that. I, I think it is true that that's the case, but I think he holds the record for the highest opening partnership in two countries. In that case, in Dominica and in India. Because Australia has a bunch of big opening partnerships against India, but they've all been made in Australia. And so the highest opening partnership ever made by Australia in India is 139, which Cowan made with little Davy Warner in the Mahali 4 game, the homework game, in 2013. Um, that was a game when Australia actually started really well. So Cowan made 86, Warner 71. And Warner got out when they'd put on 139. Steve Smith got brought back into the team for that match, you'll remember, and, and he made that 92 and looked really good coming down the, the track to the spinners and so on. And then Mitchell Stark made his 99, which is still his highest test score, and got mm. out nicking one behind, um, trying to get his 100. Australia made 408. They were feeling pretty good. And then uh, Shikhar Dawan came in on debut and made 187, made the fastest test ton on debut. Um, <laughs> They made 499 India, rolled Australia the second time around and, and won in a canter. So it started well. Why 471 for Andrew? Well, it is because when Ed Cowan was dismissed, Australia had faced exactly 78 overs. Uh, 78 times 6 is 468, not 471. But there had been three no balls in the innings, all of which had come early on during the opening partnership in the first nine overs from Bhuvneshwar Kumar and Ishant Sharma. So there had been 471 deliveries faced at the time that Ed Cowan was dismissed, having already established the highest Australian opening stand in India. That is really well done, Jeff. Congratulations for getting to the bottom of that. I was a bit worried for you there, but you nailed it. Thank you, Andrew. You're an absolute ripper. I should say, by the way, that Winnie's favourite song is um, the Future Heads cover of... um, of Hounds of Love, so she gets quite excited with goes, oh, 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 whenever it comes on, <laughs> which is really cool. Anyway, Winnie Mae Collins coming to Australia next week. 310 next, Amelia Vine. We said KP and Collingwood at Adelaide. Uh, Amelia said, that's not right. Yes, Amelia said, uh, I have no recollection of that test match, thus my number could not relate to it. It actually relates to a time in hours and minutes to something the current England team seem incapable of. Also representing the silent W in the ECB, as in the England and Wales cricket board, for this particular player was very important and I've not heard him mentioned much on the pod. Like Adam, I would also like to see a game at Colwyn Bay as someone from the Gurgled, which is Welsh for the north, apparently. Yes, so I guess we we worked this out a little bit, Jeff, before that... It had to be a Welsh player who'd mm-hmm. saved a game because, you know, what are England not doing that well of late? Saving games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and back and forth we went. 
And I can't believe I didn't get there quicker than I did because it's a very famous test that England drew back in 1998. And it, it relates to Robert Croft, uh, who, I mean, the, the, the Welsh players to represent England in men's test are Johnny Clay, Robert Croft, Jeff Jones, Simon Jones, Tony Lewis, Austin Matthews, Hugh Morris, uh, Gilbert Parkhouse, Pat Pocock, Greg Thomas, Matthew Maynard, Morris Turnbull, Cyril Walters, Steve Watkin, and Alan Watkins. But yes, the only one of that lot who batted in, in such a way to save a game was Welsh's favourite son, the off-spinning all-rounder, I think it's fair to call him, who did his thing at, at Manchester in 1998. Now, let me explain the context to you first, though. Everyone knows about the great series between South Africa and England in, in 1998. We've talked about it on the show before. But perhaps what I didn't quite realise, or remember at least, was what happened before they got to Manchester for the third test. There was a ball draw at Birmingham, and then South Africa flogged England at Lords by 10 wickets. So, you know, if, if South Africa win at Old Trafford, and Christ, after making 552 for five declared in the first innings with Gary Kirsten making 210, and then bowling out England for 183, they should be 2-0 up at Old Trafford. However, uh, the whole series turned on its head uh, when they enforced the follow-on, and rightly so, given it was on day four by that stage and a bit of time had been taken out of the game for rain, I assume, by that stage. But still, they had 173 overs, I think it was, to bowl England out a second time. All should be more or less under control. But by stumps on day four, you know, England had fought back admirably. And I, I referred already to, to a half century that's memorable. Well, absolutely, Mike Atherton's here. He was 82 not out at the close of play with England 2-11 for two. Alec Stewart down the other end on 115. But the battle between Donald and Atherton, it's worth, uh, it's worth YouTubing because it's just an absolute belter with the two of them going for broke at each other hour after hour, spell after spell. Donald around the wicket for much of that. I think Sky did something on this last year. I don't think Athers was interviewed on it, but I've certainly been in the room with Mike while this has been on the screen on Sky and seen him watch himself bat, watching Donald bowl to him and he kind of, you know, sort of sheepishly referring to how brutal the whole experience was for him. Remembering, of course, that Atherton's back was knackered by this point as well. So the whole thing was was hard yakka. Anyway, he's out early on the fifth day for 89 from 280 deliveries, one of his finest contributions for England. Um, and Alec gets to 164, the gaffer, uh, before Donald bowls him uh, after 300... And, or gets him, I don't think he bowled him, actually. I think he got him caught behind after 317 balls in the middle. So that, the engine room had delivered for England. But there was so, such a long way to go from there. Um, they're still miles behind and there's 53 overs left and they're four wickets down. And that gets worse. Thorpe's bowls an over later for nothing. Corks out to Adams the over after that. So six wickets down, 50 overs to bat, they're fucked. Enter Robert Croft coming in at number eight, joining Mark Ramprakash, who Middlesex of um, Middlesex's big signing this week is Mark Ramprakash, not to bat number four next year, although that might not be a bad <laughs> shout, to be the batting consultant. So Ramps uh, made 34 and did his bit across 149 balls when he was leg before wicket to Alan Donald. There's still 30 overs to go, seven wickets down. Flash Ash Giles on test taboo, uh, walks in and lends Croft support for 15 deliveries before becoming Donald's fifth wicket. Next up, though, Darren Goff walking in at 10. He gave Croft what he needed, support for 75 minutes and 76 deliveries uh, alongside the Welshman. But he's out and there's still 7.1 overs to go. And of that last 15 that you get on the final day. And Donald... 
is bowling to Gus Fraser uh, and the whole thing could have gone, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're a wicket away from victory, of course, South Africa at this stage. But after 19 minutes together, they just tip into the black. England are in the lead. So now it's a race against time for South Africa as well. They need to get the wicket and have the two over changeover and have at least one over to bat. So they have two more overs left after England go in the black. It's Donald to Fraser. I mean, Donald's bowled like 40 overs by this point, taken like six for 60. And it's a perfect over, beats the bat a couple of times. Somehow Fraser keeps it out. The last ball, a ferocious shot for league before. It's turned down. I mean, if there's DRS, it could have gone either way, put it that way. Hard to tell from the Mm. camera angle, but that's Donald's last ball of the test match. He gets his cap and he's just exhausted. And then Robert Croft has one more over to face out and duly does. He sees out a maiden from Paul Adams and that's it. They shake hands because they won't have time uh, to bat a second time. uh, After 171 overs, England saved the test match. And for Croft's part, 37 not out, but the only number that really mattered on there was 190 minutes. So three hours and 10 minutes uh, to save the Manchester test match in 1998. And we know that England went on to square the series the next week. For Croft's part, for his Beloved Glamorgan, he played between 1989 and and 2012, in addition to 71 caps for England across tests and and one-day internationals. He was the first Welshman to take 1,000 wickets and make 10,000 runs, to be precise, 1,175 scalps and 12,880 runs, including eight centuries. Uh, Amelia noted that, yes, he was the first Welshman to complete that famous double, but no more important runs than the 37 he made at, at Old Trafford in 98. 37 not out. Uh, frankly, should have gone for the 50 in that last over from Paul Adams. Should have played a couple of shots. They would have had the field up, you know, just popped a couple over the top, get yourself And I suppose you're right because once you face one ball, that's over complete, isn't it? Right. So, I mean, yeah, there's facing out the maiden, right? But even by facing, by definition, one ball, that over is exhausted. Yeah. So, there's, yeah, I agree. Have a fucking go. Yeah, yeah. Sort, sort yourself out. Get your priorities right, Crofty. Then you could be on the, uh, the list of great half centuries. Right, next up, Adam in Vanuatu is 664. Now, this goes back a long time. We've often said there is no statute of limitations on revisits with Nerd Pledge. And that is certainly the case here because uh, Adam's pledge came in in January 2020 when we said, Jeff, that it was either Warns figures in the Boxing Day test of 94 when he took his hat trick or uh, Sam Robson's cap number. I reckon this is, I mean, this is going back to really early days when we weren't actually making a story time show. This is before Winnie's born. This is, you know, this is kind of like a couple of numbers slotted into the show, isn't it? This is January 2020. This is back when when the world was young, uh, when when times were new, when when we were innocent, when we were... Newly born lambs frolicking in in green pastures with no idea of what was to come. (laughs) Uh, So Adam came back to us and said, a very old revisit that he made actually in December 19 when living in Vanuatu, uh, he no longer lives there. Uh, We guessed it was Warren's bowling figures uh, and we weren't far off with the dates there, uh, that Boxing Day suggestion, within a few months of that date that he was thinking of. An obscure clue that might point you in the right direction is the call of Billy Moore, former Australian NRL player. And that's from Adam, formerly of Vanuatu, now in Brisbane. Uh, Jeff, when I saw the rugby league reference, you've got a much ha- much better handle on that game than me. It, it made sense that you you have a crack at that. Who is Billy Moore? Well, it, it's I found it very amusing that you th- you threw this to me because Billy Moore is the author of your favourite thing to say about the great state um, of Queensland, of course, the state you know the state that has my allegiance. Now, 
you love to say Queenslander to people. Queenslander. I do. <laughs> is this the bloke that started the Queenslander thing? Billy Moore is the Queenslander guy because at <laughs> halftime in an Origin game in 95, Billy Moore was walking down the tunnel um, with the Maroons team and he was just yelling out, Queenslander, Queenslander, like multiple times. Um <laughs> And the commentary on the TV was a bit confused because it was very audible. They were like, well, Billy Moore certainly seems very um, revved up. They're very excited about being from Queensland, I guess. Um, that's Billy Moore. And so, yeah, the, the, you, you should know that. And now, okay. now you do oh, that. Oh, forget. <laughs> so, so Exactly. And he said it in exactly that voice. Like you can, I'm sure you can YouTube that as well if, if you want to. It'll be up there when you go to look at Abdul Razak hitting five boundaries. Now, the only Queenslander in the Australian team around that era, if we're looking at something within a few months of the Boxing Day test, is Ian Healy. So I'm going to assume it's a test match and we're not looking into ODIs, but where are they a few months after Boxing Day? They're in the Caribbean. Um, they're playing the first test of the series in Bridgetown, the famous 95 series uh, in which Australia win. They beat the Great West Indies side. And the Windies bat first. They don't make heaps. Australia are also not making heaps. They're one run behind when Healy comes out to bat at number seven. And Healy helps at 152. He makes 74 not out. And towards the end of his innings of 74 not out, he hits a sequence of boundaries that go 6-6-4. Six, six, <laughs> that gets Australia a big enough lead and they win the test match and go on to win the series. Fabulous stuff. The uh, Yes, the test match when Glenn McGrath really announced himself as well, wasn't it? Uh, cheers, Adam, from Vanuatu, now Brisbane. As I said to you in the messages, I won't get to Brisbane this summer, much to my chagrin, but Jeff will be there. And I think what we'll do at different points in the summer, we're not doing a live show in Brisbane because of the border, but we will try and you know do some sort of some sort of coffee or beer or something with your with you being there, Jeff. And much will be the same in Adelaide. We're going to do a live show in Adelaide, but we'll do some sort of some sort of coffee uh, there as well, I suppose, before play or a beer if we're feeling, feeling adventurous before going on broadcast. And then we'll we'll do other things like that around our live shows, which we haven't announced formally yet, but you can very much pencil into your diaries. Will be the fourth of January in Sydney, uh, the thirteenth of December in Melbourne and the 14th of December in Adelaide. The onus on Jeff and I is to now get that all sorted in the next few days and and start selling tickets and start telling you all about the live shows that we will do through the Ashes Summer. Hello, me again. Uh, You might be wondering why we played that bit of uh, interlude music in quite a clunky way. Well, uh, to take you behind the curtain, this is when Jeff and I were preparing to start part two of the show. Not part two in terms of what you're listening. You've already heard the ad. But uh, as far as when we were recording this across a couple of days, as we often do on Storytime. However, about 20 minutes before we were set to hit record, I received this voicemail. Hey, it's, uh, it's me. I see that we're supposed to record part two in about half an hour. Uh, so I went for a little bike ride to wake up, you know, get get energised. Um, thought it would be nice uh, to do that while it was raining and dark. So I put the the gear wheel, you know, the like the spiky bit with the teeth. I've stabbed that into my ankle and like taken out a large piece. 
So I'm at the Royal Melbourne um, getting tetanus shots and an x-ray and some stitches um, and bleeding everywhere. So I think let's do part two next week. Does that sound good? I think I think I think that sounds good. Um, yeah, I'll talk to you later. Yes, that's right. Jeff has again crashed his bike for the umpteenth time. I don't know how many times Jeff has made his way to the emergency room since we've known each other across the last six or seven years, but it is without a doubt more than anybody I know. As Cam Fink once joked, Jeff uses the emergency room like most people use the GP clinic, but we wish Jeff well. Judging by the photo he sent me, it'll be a couple of stitches and then he'll be back on track soon enough. It does mean we have missed out on telling a bunch of stories this week. We will make amends next week. I I will note that they were going to be stories or revisits for Anthony Radford, Chris Clark, Thilo Fobb, Robert Dinsey, Jack Firth, Jack France, as I scroll down the page furiously, Simon Ward, uh, Shane Fagg, Michael Fallon, Kieran Costello, Jaya Prakash, Rob Sinclair. We had a lot to get through uh, in this second part, but we'll get to it all next week. Of course, what that means we've also failed to do is announce who's won uh, the slab from Brick Lane this week. Well, how's this? First of all, it's going to be Anthony Radford who wins the Brick Lane giveaway. So congratulations to Anthony, who's been a great supporter of the show. Uh, you will receive in your inbox a voucher from Brick Lane and you can direct a slab any way you wish in Australia. But while uh, while, we're, while we're on the topic of Brick Lane, how good is this? As you might have heard off the front when Jay was talking, we have free beer to give away. BrickLaneBrewing.com forward slash pages forward slash the final word. We'll pop that in the show notes. There is a giveaway for 200 final word listeners and this couldn't be more straightforward. All you need to do is jump on that page, BrickLaneBrewing.com forward slash pages forward slash the final word and pop in your first name and your email you will join the Brick Lane newsletter and in doing so you'll receive a free mixed four pack of Brick Lane's award winning One Love Pale Ale and the delicious new Sidewinder Hazy Pale so all you need to do is go to that website we can give away 200 lots of the four packs which is pretty cool I reckon so thank you to Brick Lane for that and as Jay also mentioned uh, off the top uh, we're going to have another one of those 15% discounts going out later in December before Christmas. We'll have a bit of a think about how we do it. It was Maxi145 next time. There might be an appropriate Nerd Pledge link there. Let us know on Discord what you think might work there. So, it's an abrupt end in some ways to story time, but we did get through quite a lot. Thank you to listening as always. Thanks to our friends at Wisdom Cricket Monthly for being fine supporters of the final word as well. The new edition of Wisdom Cricket Monthly is out right now. It's out today. Uh, Edition number 50 bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW. Thank you to all our beloved patrons for allowing us to make this show uh, time and time again, week in, week out. Storytime 70. I can't quite believe we've been doing this for well over a year now. If you're not a patron and would like to be, patron.com forward slash the final word. Um, since we recorded part one, we actually have got a, a bit more detail on the live show in Adelaide. That's definitely going to be the 14th of December. Tickets will be out next week and Melbourne will probably be the 13th of December and Sydney the 4th of January. Uh, we'll have uh, all that information going out uh, in the usual places but you can learn more about the live shows more about what we're going to be doing through the ashes
this summer at patreon.com forward slash the final word. It would be great to have you uh, along with us for the ride on what's going to be a massive few weeks. Okay, thanks for listening. This has been the final word story time with Adam Collins and an injured Jeff Lemon. We'll be back to do it all again uh, through the weekend uh, with the World Cup final between Australia and New Zealand. Then the weekly show will start again next week as well. Right out. Bye for now. Have a nice weekend. I had to go Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. Finalwordcricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at bricklanebrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.